hope you all are well. You're turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We began last week looking at an overview of the Gospel of Mark and what we would encounter there. And this morning, we will begin our study of that text. If you have your Bibles and it's open, I invite you to stand as we read this morning. We stand to proclaim God's authority in our life through His Word. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we confess together this is Your Word. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask that You come and open it to our hearts and our minds, cause us to respond to it in faith, cause faith in our hearts, cause obedience in our lives. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. I may have said last week, I want to say again, Mark is a story that demands a response. Mark is a story or a biography of Jesus that demands a response from you and I. Perhaps you've encountered a story where it demands something of you, some response from you, based on the story itself, or a command. And I want to to tell you a story from my life that kind of fits this mold. When I was younger, uh, my father would often give me instructions on things to do. Uh, When I was very young, it would be simplistic things like, Ben, clean your room. When I got older, it would be, Ben, be home by such and such time. And usually, those, those commands were followed by the phrase, or there will be consequences. Now, maybe you grew up in a similar, with a similar experience. I have now, without intentionally doing that, incorporated that into my own parenting. And I hear it quite often when I say it, there will be consequences if you don't do that. And I'll have a, a flashback to my own childhood or teen years. But when my father would tell me to do something, or my mother for that matter, would tell me to do something it came with an expectation of obedience on my part. They expected me to respond appropriately to what they were saying. We face this kind of thing all day, every day, in various aspects of our lives, whether it's at work, at home, on the road, right? There are consequences to breaking the speed limit. There's an expectation there. Mark fits into that that kind of a, an idea that it's a story 
that places an expectation on our lives. This is not just a kick back, throw the feet up, and enjoy that kind of story. This is not an Andy Griffith type narrative. Although it's a very enjoyable story. An incredible story. But it's a story with expectation. The point of these opening scenes that we're going to look into in the Gospel of Mark, they are to let us know. You see, we are readers of Mark's Gospel in 2019. Anytime you open your Bible and you read from this Gospel, Mark was writing this Gospel to you. Isn't that incredible? That the way that the God who created everything out of nothing inspired John Mark to write this gospel to you today. And so he's writing it to you, and he wants us to know who Jesus is, and he wants to stress to us why Jesus came, which was to fulfill the promises of God. And so here's the expectation that it puts on you and I as the readers. When we hear this word and we disobey, there are consequences. When we hear this word and respond in faith, there are consequences. Now, I grew up hearing that there's good consequences, there's bad consequences. And in my mind, for whatever reason, consequence is just a negative word. But there's an expectation laid down. Mark is saying Jesus is God, and he came to fulfill the mission of God in the world, and it demands a response. You either believe and find life, or you disbelieve and you reject God. And so right up front, Mark is telling us, by the way, everything that's about to come, I'm giving you the answer. I'm telling you right up front, Jesus is God. So when you read the story about Jesus walking on the water, it's not because he was a cool magician, it's because he's God. He owns the water. When you read the story about Jesus doing this, that, and the other, which are miraculous, it's not because he's just a special guy, it's because he's God. But if you're like me, when you read the story of the Gospels, and you come across guys like the disciples, who seem to just struggle with the most simple of things, you get mad at them. Well, why couldn't you do that? If I were in your situation, I wouldn't have taken my eyes off of you, Jesus. I'd have kept walking on the water. I could have done that. We read sometimes the Gospels in that way, forgetting that we know part of the story that Peter didn't in that moment. We forget that the disciples didn't have the Gospel of Mark to consult when they were confused. And so Mark is saying up front, as we move through his story, the answer is Jesus. The main character is Jesus. And that puts responsibility on you and I and puts us with a choice. I either will believe or I will reject God. You see, at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John says, all these things have been written down, and even more were not written down. But the things that are written are so that you might believe. And in believing, find life. Mark intends us to see that life is in Jesus. So here's the main point for today. The gospel is the good news that God has kept his promise to send the Messiah. 
The gospel is the good news that God has kept His promise to send the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible, the, the story of Jesus in the Bible doesn't pick up with Matthew. Jesus is not a new character as soon as the New Testament opens. Jesus is the main character of the entire Bible, all 66 books. They're all about Jesus. And so when we come to Mark's gospel and he says, by the way, here's Jesus, what he's saying is God is fulfilling his promises to save. And so we see there in verse 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. As it is written. We could translate that into modern language and say, This has been said a bunch of times before. This has been said a bunch before is what Mark's saying. We see most of our Bible, brothers and sisters, is what we would call the Old Testament. Right, there's, a, there's a distinction in my Bible. This is the Old Testament. This is... The New Testament. And Mark's saying everything back here, as it is written, is about Jesus. It's about the coming of Jesus. And so he consults or references there in verse 2, Isaiah. Isaiah was what we call one of the major prophets. You ever heard that? The major and the minor prophets in the Old Testament? That sounds like a really fancy distinction. Really all that means is that the major prophets are the really long ones and the minor prophets are the short ones. That's just the distinction. And Isaiah is one of the major prophets because he's one of the longest Old Testament prophetic books. But in the life of the Jews, in the life of the Old Testament, Isaiah occupies a tremendous place. It's not any more important than any of the other books. But it is essential to understanding the fullness of Jesus. We don't have to know anything about Isaiah to understand that Jesus is God's Son, that He came to save sinners from death and hell, and that He offers us salvation through faith. We don't have to have an understanding of Isaiah for that. But if we are going to understand the fullness of Jesus, if we're going to understand all the, all the intricacies of Mark's gospel, Mark holds this up and says this is a fulfillment of Isaiah. It's like if the room were dark in here. I've used this example before. If we cut all the lights out and it was nighttime, and then I had a flashlight, and I held that flashlight right here, I couldn't see really any of you in this room. And you might not could see everything about me, but you could see what this light is shining on. And that's kind of like Jesus without any of the rest of the Bible. We can see Jesus. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we flip the house lights on, we see everything in here, but this is still the same. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with the Bible. He helps us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Bible. And so Mark attributes everything he's about to say to Isaiah, but really it's a collection of three different quotations from the Old Testament. And helping us to see the first point there on your notes, that Jesus is the fulfillment of of the scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Now, it was common in the time that Mark was writing to attribute an idea or a snippet to one person, even if it was a collection of several quotations. They would attribute it to one thing, and that's what he's doing here. Isaiah, like I said, was crucial to, what, to Mark's story. And so the first quote 
that Mark attributes or quotes from is Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. I think in your notes there, I have it 20, or 20, 23. That's incorrect. It's chapter 23, verse 20. And so as Mark is thinking through Jesus, and he's thinking through, how do I tell this story for the centuries to come? The Holy Spirit gives him inspiration, and he goes to Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. And he reads these words. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. I'm sending an angel, or I'm sending a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Now, if you know anything about biblical history or the book of Exodus, this is when Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, and then they're, they're now moving through the wilderness toward the promised land. They're moving through the wilderness toward the promised land. And God is saying, I'm sending you a messenger and he's going to care for you and guide you. And he's going to get you to where I want, him, I want you to go. Amen. He's going to get you to where I intend for you to be. Now we know, if you know the rest of the story, we know that they eventually get to the promised land. It takes them 40 years. And God has purpose in those 40 years. Sometimes that's some of our biggest struggles is waiting. We think it should be done now and right now. And sometimes it's God's purpose to say, look, I'm going to get you to where I intend for you to be. It's just going to take 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But Mark is thinking in his mind about the fullness of the Bible. And he says, the Holy Spirit brings Exodus 23 verse 20 to him. God said, I'm going to send you a messenger. He's going to guide you, and he's going to get you to where I intend him, to where I intend you to go. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Mark is continuing to think, how do I explain Jesus to the church? How do I explain Jesus to those who are going to read my gospel, my gospel story. And so he's thinking of Exodus chapter 23. He thinks also of Isaiah chapter 40. And in verse 3, Isaiah writes, a voice cries, or a voice cries out, or yells out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what that means, make straight... uh, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What that means is clear the way, level the roads. Make sure when the royal cart comes by or the royal carriage, when it rides by, make sure it's not bumpy and rocky. Make sure it's fit for a king. And Isaiah's point is this, the king is coming. The king is coming. Make straight, make level, clear the way because the king, Isaiah says, is coming. And who's coming before the king, according to Isaiah? A voice in the wilderness crying out. Someone is going to cry, going to say these things in the wilderness before God comes. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, you don't have to flip there. Towards the end of the Old Testament, in our English Bibles, in chapter 4 of Malachi... 
Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I will send you Elijah the prophet. So Mark is thinking about all these things, and he has all these verses in his mind, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, these things come together, and they begin to make sense. And he says, Oh yeah, God said that He would lead His people. He would send a messenger to lead His people into the promised land. Well, that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to lead us out of the wilderness of sin into the promised land of life eternal with God. And so then He says, well, there was this guy out in the wilderness named John, and he was baptizing. That wasn't by accident because he was a voice in the wilderness of Israel crying out, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. That seems to fit with what Isaiah said. And then he starts to take note of what John is wearing, which we'll talk about in a moment. But John wore camel's hair and a leather belt. And do you know who else in the Bible wore camel's hair and a leather belt? Elijah. And so then Malachi comes to his mind. John the baptizer is the new Elijah in the wilderness, making straight, clearing the way for the coming of God. And so he's considering all that the Old Testament has said about God's coming to rescue his people, and it all kind of comes together in the story of Jesus Christ. And this is not by accident. It's because God ordained that it would be this way. And so when we're considering the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, we need to think about a few things. Number one, Mark's helping us to see what's really going on. He's helping us to see kind of behind the scenes of what's going on. Have you ever seen a play or a play with a narrator? You're watching the play unfold, and then kind of you step to the side, and a narrator will come out and kind of give some commentary and explain what's going on in the play. He'll help you understand, or she'll help you understand what's actually going on. And that's what Mark's doing here. He's saying before we ever get into the fact that Jesus did some awesome stuff, like miracles and raised people from the dead, we need to understand exactly who he is. Because you see, I can appreciate the special talents of someone who does some cool things. I can appreciate that Jesus, this God, taught some really compelling stuff and he multiplied some fish and some bread, and he walked on the water. I can appreciate that. But if he's not the Son of God, that has no bearing on me. I can just be a fan of his. But if he did all that stuff, and he is God himself, that demands, brothers and sisters, that I respond to that man. I can't deal passively with him. If he's God, I can't just say, that was cool, man, I'll see you later. I can't treat him like a sports icon that I like to watch when it's comfortable for me and then go about my life unaffected. There's a great writer. C.S. Lewis is his name. Many of you may be familiar with his books and some of his, they've made some of his books into movies recently, but he said we can't approach Jesus and leave the same way. We have to make a decision about who he is. He's either Lord or he isn't. And that's really what Mark is putting to us. He's either God, and we act like he's God, or he isn't God. And so Mark, trying the best he can 
and he's doing an excellent job because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying to us, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus says later that he is according to the law and the prophets. Have you all ever heard that as you read through the Bible? According to the law and the prophets. That's kind of a way to talk about the entire Old Testament. And who does Mark quote from? He quotes from Exodus, which is part of the law. And he quotes from the prophets. And so he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures according to the law and the prophets. And so before I move on, let me ask you this question. Why does this point matter? Why does it matter that we know Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? Many of us maybe already knew that. But you see, it's not enough merely to know. It's not merely enough to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Because if I know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, like I know 2 plus 2 equals 4, both of those things I know to be true, but that doesn't mean that I live according to that. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, brothers and sisters, that affects every single aspect of our lives. It affects everything about who we are. See, Mark's telling us right off the bat who God is. And it demands a response, which is why we go on to the second thing. Beginning in verse 4, we see the crucial ministry of John the baptizer. We've come to call him John the Baptist, which is an appropriate name. In Mark, he is John the baptizer, or the one who is baptizing people. You see, John's message was this, that the one who is coming possesses all authority. The one who is coming. Now, let me set the scene for you. Anybody ever been to the Holy Land? I, all right, so Tim and I have been to the Holy Land. And if you ever get a chance to go, it is a worthwhile, life-changing trip. I have been in this area that it's talking about. This is Jerusalem south and to the east, kind of where the Dead Sea is, the, the wilderness, and this barren out there. It's brown, dusty, and that's where John was. It's not somewhere you would say, I think I'd like to go for an afternoon walk in the wilderness. Because unlike today, there was no food out there. There were no restaurants. There were no conveniences. And so when people went out there, they had to make preparations. They had to decide with purpose, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to prepare because there's nothing out there to survive on. And so... When Mark writes his gospel and he tells us about John, somewhere along the way, John is born and grows up, and he's out in this wilderness area living, and he's living kind of as a hermit, really. But then he gets the call from God to start preaching, and he rises up in an an Isaiah 40, verse 3 type of way, crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of our Lord. And his message is, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so people are hearing about this. They're being stirred up in their spirit and compelled to go out. And it tells us, Mark says, all Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to hear John. They were going out to hear this man talking about one greater who is coming. Now again, let's follow the line of the story. John doesn't know Jesus yet. Most likely, he doesn't know what he looks like. And so he's out preaching. 
But he knows that one greater is coming. And the one greater is even greater than he. The one coming who is the Lord will possess all authority. He will accomplish the will of God. And so as I said a moment ago, John the baptizer is the new Elijah. He's the new Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, we see almost to a T, John is the new Elijah. He wears the same clothes. He has the same belt. He eats the same food, locusts and honey. Now, what's fascinating about that, see, when, when we think about locusts or grasshoppers, that sounds entirely unappetizing. I have no desire to eat grasshoppers dipped in wild honey. But here's what's fascinating and just incredible about the Bible. Do you know what food is permissible under the law? Grasshoppers and honey. There are four types of grasshoppers permitted under the law of God that are clean food to eat. And you know what John was eating? An approved grasshopper dipped in approved honey. Now, why does that matter? It matters because John was concerned with holiness before God. Because sometimes when we think about the law, it can just seem oppressive. And, we, you know, Leviticus may not be your sit-down morning devotion time. It's hard reading sometimes. But what we need to be aware of when it comes to texts like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where the law is explained, while the law may not apply in its full sense anymore, what it does tell us is that God is particular about His holiness. God is particular about how we, His people, respond to Him. And John, being concerned with God's holiness, has responded according to the law. And so he's announcing the coming of the Lord. He's announcing the judgment and reckoning that God will bring because he's calling people to repent. What is repentance? It means turning away from something and beginning a fresh path. Turning away from sin so that we stop and walk in the opposite direction. You see, John was concerned that we know Power exists, and power exists only in God. Power exists, but power exists truly only in God. And so he says, because that power is coming, because the one who possesses that power is coming, the only response is to repent and believe. Now it's interesting because John is preaching to the Jews. And who is the only people on earth that had the law of God? It was the Jews. And so you would think the people who had the law of God would respond rightly to God. If anybody could, it would be the people who had the law. It would be the religious people. And yet, who is John preaching repentance to? The Jews. Who came out to him? The Judeans and those who lived in Jerusalem. Those would have been the Jews. And so it's quite scandalous to think. John is telling, it would be akin to us. People who profess Christ and who live Christian lives on the whole being called to repent. <clears throat> that would be offensive to us. But John was saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point because these people were worshiping the law instead of the God of the law. And so he's calling them to repent. 
Because the one with power, the one who will judge, is coming. And so as we consider the story, when it says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance, Mark's story is presented in such a way that although this is a 2,000-year-old story from the Judean wilderness, it's presented in such a way that his message and his warning are put to you and I today. It's put to you and it's put to me today. You see, by introducing his gospel with the account of John the Baptist, Mark is recreating this crisis decision for you and I. You see, John put the Jews in a crisis decision. Repent of your sin and be baptized so that God will, be, will forgive sins or stand before God under the weight of your sin. That's a crisis decision. Because if I choose to repent, what I'm saying is I can't get to God on my own, and I need God for salvation. But if I choose not to repent, what I'm saying is I prefer the lifestyle that I'm leading. I'm not going to change the way I'm living. We can sometimes be far too comfortable with professing Christ and yet leading a life that we choose to lead. And yet Mark's saying, nope, that doesn't work. Through John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit's putting this decision on us today. Will I respond in repentance and faith, or will I reject God and continue to live the way that I want to live? Mark is asking us today, will I repent and turn to God in faith? It's important also, and I'll just make a quick note of this, it's important also to note where John is. John didn't go to Jerusalem. They didn't gather in a special church building. John is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness where there's nothing. And yet God, through the Holy Spirit, has compelled all of these people to go out to the wilderness to receive the teaching from John. And so just as John is the new Elijah, the wilderness has special place in the Bible as well. It has a special place in the Bible as well. Many Old Testament prophets fled to the wilderness to mourn and lament over sin. The wilderness in the Old Testament is a lot of times known as the staging ground for Yahweh's future victories over evil. We see in Exodus that the wilderness is a testing ground for God's people. And so consequently, as the people of God are going out into the wilderness, they may have had thoughts of disobedience, judgment. But they would also have thoughts of grace. See, in the wilderness of Israel, and when, the, when the people were moving from Egypt to the promised land, the, place, the wilderness was a place of judgment and punishment. But it was also a place of grace because God was purging his people of sin. And so when the people went out into the wilderness to meet with John, they went out for both of those things. Judgment of sin, but grace through forgiveness. And so the imagery of the wilderness is meant to create in us this expectation that God is about to liberate his people again. 
Just as God liberated His people through the wilderness in Exodus, He's about to liberate His people again through the coming of Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to application and reflection on a text like this, we need to ask, what relation does this have to my life? What relation does this story have to my life? Well, the first question I want to ask you is this. It's a personal question. Am I recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? Am I recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? Well, how can I know that I recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? Let me get back to the story I opened with. When my dad said, Ben, if you don't do this, there will be consequences. Do you know how I recognize or how he recognized if I understood? Whether I obeyed or disobeyed. Because if I disobeyed, he would know that I do not understand the consequence. Or, on the flip side, that I am willfully accepting the consequence. And so how can I know that I am recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? I can consider my life. I can consider whether I'm walking in faith. I can consider whether or not I am leading a life that's pleasing to God. I'm going to read a text from Romans chapter 3. You don't have to flip there. Just listen to these words. Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made available apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How do I know if I'm recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? If I respond to a text like that and say, yes, absolutely, amen, yes, He is the Christ. He is my salvation, He is my life. And I can show you this is how I'm living these are the evidences that Jesus is the center of my life, then we can say, brothers and sisters, yes, I am recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He influences everything about me. He influences this and that and this and that. Or we may have to say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, but it really doesn't have any effect on my living. I hear Romans 3 but that really doesn't have an effect. I, I'm, not, I'm not overly joyful about that. If we deal with God passively, then maybe we need to take a step back and say, am I really recognizing Jesus as God in the way that Mark intends? You see, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool in his heart says there is no God. And that's not an atheist. That's one who lives like there is no God. So that can be a lot of people. And Mark is saying, be warned, because God will not be dealt with passively. Am I recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures? The second question is this. Have I encountered John's warning and responded in repentance? Have I encountered John's warning and responded in repentance? And so then again we ask the question, well, how can I know? if I have responded to John's warning. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John writes this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. We say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So let me ask you as we come to a close to bow your head and close your eyes. I want to ask you some questions for you to consider. We need to ask ourselves these questions as we leave this passage. How much by practical experience do I know what John is preaching? Have I repented? Have I reckoned with my sin? Have I seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures and responded in faith. We need to ask ourselves, how do I think of Jesus? Have I ever felt my need for Him? Have I ever fled to Him for peace? Is He king over my heart? Is Jesus everything to my soul? We ask ourselves, what do we think of the Holy Spirit? We need to ask ourselves, what evidence, what gospel fruit is and has the Holy Spirit worked in our lives? We need to ask ourselves, has the Spirit renewed and changed me? Lord, as we take up your word this morning, I pray that you would cause it to live inside of our hearts and our minds that you would call us to faith and repentance. Lord, repentance is, is a one-time action in one sense, but Lord, it's also the lifestyle of the Christian. That we lead a lifestyle of fighting sin and pursuing holiness. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is in fact the fullness of the Scriptures. That all of the Bible is about Him. And that it's not just a passive thing. You intend for us on this day, September the 1st, 2019, to answer the question in our hearts, is Jesus the Christ? Because our answer to that question has implications for our lives. So Lord, I pray for those in the room who may not be believers. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would call them to faith right now. For those in the room, Lord, that are Christians, I pray that you would give us the motivation to live faithfully that we would do so together for your glory. Lord, we pray and we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So we respond through song this morning. I invite you to stand. The altar is open. I'm available to pray with. But I would invite you to stand and sing praise to God now.
please pay attention to your bulletin. Lots of information in there, lots going on this week. Uh, Wednesday night's going to be a big night, so please make plans to be here uh, for that. Um, reminder that today, Reuben and Vicki Dominguez will be at the barn. If you have questions, see Cindy Sumner. Uh, that's at 1 p.m. today. Um, and before we close, is there anyone that we need to add to the prayer list this morning? All right, if you know of anyone, please make sure to let me or Fran know. Uh, but let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us day by day through your son Jesus. Teach us to be faithful, to love you, and to know you more. Thank you for loving us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.